0: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am really lucky to be sitting here today with Eileen Robertson-Hamra, who has an extraordinary grief story that she shares with the world in her book, Time to Fly, and across her platform. Eileen, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Megan. Thanks.
0: So I would love it if you would introduce our listeners to you and your work and your story. And maybe just you can start with telling us how you come into the world of grief and loss.
1: I'm here, well, partly because I have written a book, but the story in the book, and there's a couple grief stories in the book that I share in the book, December of 2011, and living in Southern California, had three little kids a 4-year-old, 7-year-old and 8-year-old and we had flown back east to spend christmas with our families and went to the airport to pick up my husband and his plane had crashed. So that is the story that that I start with in the book and that's the the beginning of actually my second wave of grief. And mm. my first grief story is my I lost my sister. So I was 41 when Brian passed and when I was 23, my younger sister who was 20 and attending Slippery Rock University died suddenly in her sleep of actually a drug interaction. She was on medication for a heart condition that she had and had been put on Prozac early 1993, early days antidepressants combined with heart medication. It, it never should have happened, but she, she wasn't feeling well and and died in her sleep. So those are two pretty obviously super significant relationships in my life that I lost both very suddenly. It was after my after losing Brian though, to me it was this obviously a horrible experience, but my experience of it was a huge spiritual growth experience. So like mm. I felt Like I was growing spiritually, but also like there was a lot of like weird synchronicities that were happening and I would share those stories with people and I'd be like, oh my God, you're never going to guess what just happened. And they're like, oh my God, Eileen, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. You got to write a book. And that's where the the idea and birth of of the book came because I had heard it enough that I was like, fine, I'm going to write a book again, as we chatted before the podcast podcast having no freaking clue what actually writing a book
0: no would. idea it's so hard so,
1: yeah. so it took 7 years 7 years to actually write the book but really part of that writing the book was actually living the experiences after the grief and living through grief that actually I needed to actually experience it and have some time away from it so yeah. that I could actually share and so the sh- the story I share in the book is from the grief and then also what it took for myself to open up myself to loving again, mm. opening up myself to being vulnerable again, and then opening up myself to possibilities in life that I never even wanted or dreamed or thought about. And so I share about actually opening up myself to having an additional child at the age of 46. So, and, you know, straight up out of the miracle book, seriously, out of the miracle books. Halle um, Berry,
0: just call you Halle Berry. Yeah,
1: oh my God. He, is, he is a miracle.
0: Oh my so, God.
1: Oh so, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I have a million questions, but I want to ask about the spiritual component. Cause I'm really excited to know about this mostly because so I've been doing this podcast almost a year. My mom has been dead two and a half years And what I know about grief and loss, both as a professional and as a griever, is that you integrate it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you and I had met, if we had done a podcast last March when I started this, I would have said, okay, so by the way, I want to know about all this woo-woo stuff, but I don't believe in it at all. And I am in a very different place with that, which I find super intriguing. And I haven't really talked about this on the podcast, but I see a medium now. She's more like a an a futuristic healer, I think is what she would call herself. And even saying that out loud, I feel like I'm probably going to be letting some of my listenership down who was really committed into my skepticism, but I am nothing if not like a curious Healer, and I said to you off mic a minute ago, I really believe in demonstrating to people the spectrum that we use in order to integrate and learn and carry the grief into the future. There's a million analogies out there, I love them all. The way that I think about it is it's similar to becoming a parent you know, no, you, when you become a parent, you are for the rest of your life. And when you yeah. are a griever, you are for the rest of your life. And I imagine that the way in which you grieved your sister and who you became after your sister died was different than after Brian died. But I would love to know, was there some of that spirituality with your sister? What did it look like? How did it show up for you? And how did it help?
1: So- I'll just start with my sister because I was obviously much younger and I had grown up with religion. Like I was, you know, Irish Catholic, went to Catholic school, first through 12th grade, very familiar, all girls, high school and went to college and had a really good time and really stepped very far away from religion and church. And actually, even in my senior year of high school, I took a philosophy course and it really opened my eyes. I was like, wait a minute, history and philosophy. And it was funny. It was like at the Catholic school, but it really had me question what I had been taught and and believed. So I was still grappling with that. And when Trisha died, it brought all of that grappling up to like the forefront. And I would say like, I, I really was like, I don't, I don't believe what I used to believe. And Yet I definitely felt like, you know, Trisha would show up. I mean, like, and I was like, what is this? Like, you know, like wh- these signs and you're like, oh, well, well, it could be your brain patterns. It could be like, I'm like, no, some of these things are like whacked out, like lights coming on, <laughs> and like, uh-huh. yeah, like energetic stuff. And so I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of like near-death experience reading, a lot of like John Coruscant Gray you had that medium show, like yes, yes, ninety three, yeah, in
0: the nineties, deep nineties, the nineties,
1: right? So like, you know, I did a lot of that sort of reading. Uh, you know, actually, you know, funny enough, went to went to meet a priest at Wendy's, um, old-fashioned hamburgers, sure. and went to confession again. I mean, I just I was really looking for researching, yeah, researching and and trying to come to a new understanding of of the whole, like, what the hell happens? It's like, I don't know that I believe in heaven and hell, like I used to as a child, but like, what is it all? So so I don't have to say, like, I did a lot of work and became, came to a lot of peace, but it's funny. I almost remember at one point being like, I'm, I'm like kind of done with that. I need to create my own life. (laughs) I was young and I was like, I'm kind of, like I'm good like I'm I'm at peace. So fast forward now I'm 41 and practicing yoga, feeling a lot of peace and like you know practicing yoga, spiritual but not like I would say like heavily into spirits or you know I was open but not anything in particular. Anyway, and so it's December 22nd, which is the winter solstice, darkest day of the year. And wow. Brian was a passionate pilot. So like it wasn't his full-time job, but it was a small airplane that he was flying that didn't make it. And we're in New York, Pennsylvania. And the day after he, the plane crashes, my uh, brother and my dad went to the airport to pick up all the Christmas gifts that were in the plane. Cause I went early back East cause we had ex- extra time with the kids and he was coming. And so anyway, while they were at the airport, they were like, Eileen you need to call this gentleman who tried this funeral director that called the airport. He wants to talk to you. And I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, you know, ambulance chasing funeral director calling the airport. But my brother was pretty insistent. And so I called him and he's like, Eileen, my name is Al Cooner. I'm a pilot. I landed a half an hour before Brian was supposed to land. I heard him in the pattern and I want to take care of all your funeral expenses. Oh my God. Yeah. And then it was Christmas. So he's like, you know, let go do your best to celebrate. And I was like, well, the kids can't have Santa and daddy go in the same year. So we did the best we could as a family to like celebrate the holiday. And after because we weren't particularly religious, I was like, I want to have this at like a, like a, it was freezing too. So it wasn't going to be outside, which is what I would have preferred. But like, I was like, you know, some kind of special space. And he sets me up with a, you know, a funeral planner. And she's like, what about the Baltimore Museum of Industry? Which I had never heard about, even though I grew up in Maryland. And yeah. he's like, it's a business museum. Brian was a serial entrepreneur. And it has a twin engine plane hanging from the ceiling. Brian was flying a twin engine plane. What? And I was like, what is happening? Like what is happening? And then God. shortly after there was the, the time Chris Allen was, you know, super popular, you know, on the voice or, or like American Idol. Yeah. And he, the song he was on was live like you're dying. And one minute into that song, it says, what if your plane fell out of the sky? Who would you call for your last goodbye? But it was all about basically like living your, like, this is it. This is what we're given. This is the time we're given. You can, you can live it or you can throw it all away. And then I was like, this is all like bam, bam, bam. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. Something else is happening. Like I am not planning this funeral. Al comes to me, Baltimore Museum of Industry comes to me, these songs are given to me. And I am just like, I like, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna listen. And part of that was interesting from a grieving perspective. And it's like, I, I had to stay present personally. Like people, like people talk about like, it will shock. I mean, you could call it shock, but I also feel like it was the only place I could be was in the moment because the minute I started thinking about the past or the future, I would lose it. I was like, I can't think about my past with him and I can't think about my future without him. So I'm just going to stay right here and right here. In the moments, moment by moment, there was all these unbelievably unfolding Mm. miracles. And so I don't want to say like, I did not stay there, (laughs) you know, but in the moment. It gives
0: me chills though. And what it makes me think about, you know, so, so a lot of my background is in like kind of the neuroscience and the body science of how your body responds to trauma and death is one trauma, but sudden death is a very specific kind of trauma, right? There are certain things, like if you're afraid of snakes, you don't need to be terrified of a garden snake. It's not going to kill you. And so we can do these treatments where we're like, okay, look, you know, it's a snake and, you know, we can desensitize you to it. And then at some point you might see a snake and not freak out. The thing about death is we're wired to, to respond to death in the strongest way possible because that's how we've survived. And what's interesting always to me is there's this sort of like generalizable across cultures experience that the body goes into when it gets terrible, you know, literal life threatening news. And for some people, and what happens is, you know, this little part of your brain inflates and it sort of short circuits the rest of the way that your brain works. And people feel that they feel foggy and they, can't remember anything it's because like your hypothalamus and your hippocampus aren't getting the right electrical currents that they would otherwise a lot of the conversation stops there and what we need to remember about all that is your body is doing that to protect you to help you there is a part of the brain that we believe is and you know this is based on scientists doing sciencey things that when stimulated and when it's very active for people, those are deeply spiritual people, they think in that very esoteric way. And so I think it's possible that during the trauma, like some people are coding memories really well, or some people are functioning, they're just hustling through and other people are depressed and can't get out of bed. All of those things are ways of coping, of getting through. I love the idea that you may have had stimulation to the making meaning spiritual part of your brain as a way of coping with the impossibility. I mean, what a beautiful way to cope, to see meaning, to see a gift in a song and the people who connect with you. I mean, to me, that feels very supported. I mean, I keep thinking about how little your babies are. They're so little in this story. They're old enough to understand. They're not two. And there's three of them that just blows my, I also have three kids. They're older, but, but I found it really difficult to parent them when my mom died. I found kind of like a competition between what I needed to do with myself to grieve and what I wanted them to have as a parent showing up to caring for them in this really difficult time. But I love this idea that part of your body's way of helping you, of protecting you, was to see and feel meaning in, in things that are meant to be meaningful. I mean, clearly I went and listened to that song. It's a gorgeous song. I would happily believe it was written for you. And and you had an interaction with him, didn't you? Didn't you get a chance? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. When he came to town, to Chicago, to the, yeah, I went and saw him and and shared with him the, the difference that it made. And What was interesting, it was for me, but not just for me, right? Like there's some universal conversations that I tapped into, right? Like age old, it's like, not like, Chris Allen made up, actually, he didn't even write this song, it was actually of Irish. I How that
0: works. <laughs> yeah, but, you
1: know, yeah, like it was an Irish um, band, and I have Irish heritage, which yeah. I also share in the thing. But it's like, it's not, and that was the other thing, in moments of grief, and, and it does take you out of your everyday. I think that's like, it take, you know, you you can't just, you know, oh, he died, so we're going to, let's make lunches, and go yeah. to school, and now Like, you are, you're out of, of your everyday use, you, you have an opportunity people like it really is language, right? Like, cause it could be, is you have an opportunity to now reevaluate, reassess, relook, rethink mainly because you have no, no other choice or it'd be That's really right. weird to like, just pretend that didn't yeah. happen. And I don't, that would probably, be, <laughs> I don't know what psychological thing that yeah. would be, but yeah, that would be something else. look at but you know it really gave me an opportunity to to stop and think and and i think i often say i was like my kids were a freaking gift that, that they needed me because you know i needed to be strong for them i know it's not possible for everyone and i'm not you know like everybody's goes through their own journey and and everything is fine but for me, be, knowing that I needed to show up for them actually helped me heal yeah as you know simple as like say the, the Christmas show must go on yeah I had to get up the next day yeah um, it was interesting because I feel like the four of us really did heal together and there was a bond that we hadn't experienced as a family until then and it included Brian right as i say the four of us but it was the five of us still but we really went in it, you know it was trauma and my kids are definitely as you know well in grief and like, like you just said it's a, it's a living thing and it doesn't end like after six months or you know for our, our kids which now are included in Mike's kids, like so they're all of our kids, right? Are 18, 17, and 14. And now we have this like four-year-old. I-, I think that's one of the things, and maybe if people are new to grief or new in grieving as part of life for them, and expecting that this is now a new life thing actually is useful and is not always gonna be so heavy. Yeah. Right. Like, like, oh my God, if this is like my new life and I'm going to be grieving like this forever, then like, why would I continue? And like, no, no, no. It's not like that, but I guess, you know, at least for, for the kids, it's like, as they've grown and they've reached, you know, new developmental milestones, they actually have to deal with their circumstances with those new milestones. Right.
0: It's different, I think, for children because children, they don't have the same intellectual capacity that an adult does when there's loss. And so for children, the kind of trauma can be about, you know, their understanding and their meaning making in the world. The first death that I experienced, I was eight. My cousin drowned. He wasn't actually a biological cousin, but his family and my family were really close And an eight year old has an understanding of like parents keep you safe and the world is an okay place. And when you go to bed, everybody that was there at night is going to be there in the morning. And part of what made my childhood really challenging was that we didn't really talk about the death at all. One of the things my mom did, I was also raised Irish Catholic, was right after my cousin died, we sat in a circle and said the rosary. And I heard the word dead. So I believed he died. I didn't understand what we were saying the rosary for, and I was eight. So I didn't know the rosary. And so the meaning that I took out of that, when my cousin was still dead, after we spent said the rosary, which seemed to take like an hour and, you know, a day was that probably it hadn't worked as a magical incantation because I didn't know those prayers. And so the meaning that I took, I know it's terrible. I mean, I, it's terrible. It's, it's heartbreaking. But those are the kinds of things that children sort of end up having to navigate with the support of a parent. And so to some degree, when you're in it with other people who are all trying to figure it out, you're bumbling along together and supporting each other. And that could have happened in my family, it's just not the way that it happened in my family. So we all kind of went silent and took away our own meaning. And I'm always stunned at age 47. As to how many splinters of that child's meaning is still in my adult life. One of the things I was petrified of when I was a kid was that I was going to go to sleep and wake up in the morning and someone was going to have died. And it made sense that the person I was most afraid of dying was my older brother, because that is what happened in that other family. Recently, my family had COVID. I did not yet have COVID. I do now and I'm recovering, but I was, everybody else was sick. My kids were sick. My husband was sick. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna be the only one who gets a good night's sleep. And what happened was every 30 minutes, I woke up to make sure everyone was still alive. And I put that on my Instagram and I got hundreds of notes from people like, oh yeah, that's the legacy of childhood loss is that you have this kind of irrational fear. Then I heard from other people I was like, no, that's not just childhood loss. That's the legacy of loss. That kind of fear is not irrational when it's happened to you. I mean, it just is part of the story and kind and knowing that part of what we're integrating is not how do I not feel that way, but just, yeah, that's what grief is. Sometimes you feel that.
1: Definitely. I mean, if I get a phone call from a family member that I'm not expecting, someone's dead. I mean, and. And most of the loss that's been super close to me has been instant, right? Like not expected. I was actually sharing with someone the other day, I was like, you know, my worst thing is like, I'm going to be blindsided and I cannot protect myself from being blindsided. How do I deal with that? And then in my more calm mind, right? in the one where I'm breathing and rational and not in the fight or flight or the the panic of it all, it's okay, right? Like I, I. so I want to share a little quick story, seeing, so I share this in the book, but it's like one of these pretty dramatic stories, but it was when I saw Brian's body at the funeral home. And, you know, like I, like everyone else on the planet, felt like I was, I wanted to die. Like I literally, like I wanted to puke. I'm like, so nervous, like I'm sweating. I, I don't, I can't even believe it's actually happening. I'm in disbelief. I'm like, is this actually ha-? It's like is this is a dream, and you know, like boom, boom. And Al Puner takes me into the room where Brian's in the casket, and I'm not breathing. And I have been practicing yoga and I'm like holding my breath. And I literally said to myself, I was like, I mean, you've got to start breathing, just yeah. breathe. And I started taking these super deep breaths and I went up and I was like, oh my God, his spirit's been released from his body. Yeah. Like who, who he was is no longer in that casket. It was so obvious. And even when I share it now, I like chills. I was like, and I was so present to it being okay yeah. and he was okay i was okay it's really okay we're all gonna die and not like the, you know like it's okay we're all gonna die we're under six feet under no, no like really, get it. we really are all going to die and mm-hmm. we're so afraid of something that's inevitable And that conversation that we have about, I get it, it's human, right? Like we're animals, right? We're like this human instinct to stay alive. (laughs) Thank God. Right. But there's a whole world that we don't know. I'm not going to pretend I know, you know, there's tons of mystics out there and religious people that all, but it's like, there's, there's more to this world, this universe, this energy, his energy was no longer inside those molecules that were sitting inside that casket. And I was clear he was fine and I was going to be fine. And I feel like he's with me sometimes. Sometimes I don't, you know, to your point, it's like, sometimes I don't feel any of it and I'm just, you know, and sometimes I do. And I've come to for myself, at least just being okay with that. Like, I'm not going to understand it all, you know, and, but that there is more and however we want to describe it. So I
0: really uh, like the quantum physics of it. Like the idea of energy and energy being released out into the world and not being destroyed. Like, again, I don't, I still don't know where I shake out on heaven and hell and, I sort of wish I could believe in heaven because that feels so comforting, but then my mind starts to collapse into the like, yeah, but if you had an ex-husband or an ex-wife or your grandmother or your grandpa, like what if you died and you didn't really like your wife, you know, like, what do you, so my mind doesn't, it just doesn't land in heaven. My mother was deeply spiritual. Everything about sort of religious organization really, she found so much comfort in it and I'm grateful for that. A lot of people wanted to then respond with religious language after she died, which was super painful. And I had to sort of learn to be like, please don't say that to me. Tell me a story, but don't tell me she's in heaven because that makes you feel better and me worse. But when we only just recently, about six months ago, sold their house, my parents' house and people, you know, I like to ask the hard questions of like, what is the most painful thing? Like what was the most meaningful moment? What, you know, we do a lot of that in therapy and you know, I have a lot of painful moments. My dad almost died sort of in front of me many times, but honest to God, the thing that I, that my mind hooks back on all the time, because I believe in the, like the energy is my mom was a gardener and she poured hours of her life. Like her, her footprints are on the mound of grass. Her life is, is there. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to eat it. I wanted to consume it, swallow it, and not, I didn't care about giving the house. I just wanted the, where her energy was, you know, and and when people are talking about, do they visit a cemetery or do they put their person's ashes in the, you know, again, there's something about that airplane being in that reception space, which is, you know, they're not really related, but the energy is related. He loved planes. (laughs) And I just really believe in that. I really believe in the energetic connection of things. And, and that when you are feeling the tug in the presence of that person, I, I, I have no problem sort of saying like, yeah, that's because they're there, whether they're there hunting you like a ghost or not, but right. their energy, again, their energy is on the, it's on the planet. It's in the atmosphere. It's here somewhere, somewhere. somewhere. Right. Yeah. So why, why couldn't you? And like you, I have a lot of sort of stories in my life, not just with my parents' death, but across my life where, where I can feel energy that doesn't make any logical sense, but I know is true. And one experience which my listeners know is the reason that I knew that my mom had died is we had driven to a friend's house to pick up a child. And when I was sitting in the car and my kids run up the, the stairs to get their, their friend, my best friend's son, I had this sensation that felt like water breaking and I had one clear thought in my head, which was she died. And, you know, I just knew that that was true and I can't explain that. And it makes me uncomfortable, but I also know that like, that's just energy. It's just energy that was in my system. It was something that I came to know the way that I knew. And I now see that less as threatening and more as my friend, Susan calls it a visit And I, I like to take that in as like a visit and I like to, but it's been, it's been progress. It's been when I was in much deeper, fresher pain, it was too much to take that in. It wasn't part of my healing. It felt like it was reenacting some pain. And now two years, two and a half years in, I feel like, nah, they would like that. They would like to feel like they still got access to me. I like that interpretation of the story. And I feel like there are lots of people out there even though I was, I was one before who didn't want to hear that. Cause like, well, you feel comfort in seeing a Cardinal because you believe it's your dad and I can't, I like to tell people, well, you know, like everything we are progressing through grief. And I, I am appreciative of you being here because you have a long history of grief behind you. And I do think it's really important. Like we look to the wisdom of elders To say exactly what you said a minute ago, which is like, it's not always this heavy. And just because you believe in that moment, when you're looking at your husband's dead body, that you will not survive it does not mean you will not survive it. I mean, it is a miracle to me how much pain the human form is able to carry and still survive and not die from it. I I find that totally startling.
1: Yeah. What's interesting I'm just like, as we're chatting and thinking about this, it's like, you know, we, we do, we're human, right. And we live inside this conversation and language and meaning making. And, and so much of it is universal, right? Like we're not making up words. We're given a lot of, (laughs) we're given all the words. I mean, there are a few people that are creating new things, but mostly we're like just reliving, you know, history and, and thought and, and. And then, and then like, you know, that this whole idea of like, that there is something we're only given perspective from our own bodies. Right. Like I'm just living the Eileen life. Right. Like I, you know, I'm living my experience of it, but you're living your experience and everybody else is living their own experience. So like, there's so much going on. And so like, none of it's real, none of it's true and, you know, or necessarily true, I don't know. But I was thinking about pain. All that is a little bit of trying to be a background for me to say something around like pain, which we so try to avoid, can be not doesn't have to be, but can be a gateway yeah. to growth, transformation, transformation, baby. And that's what this that is what this whole book is about. It is like you don't have to. It's not right to. Uh, there's no judgment in, except for, for my, from my own experience, leaning into the pain and experiencing the pain is the thing that has had me grow the most. Not like, not like other good things, like becoming a parent, although that was into, you know, physical pain. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny. We forget that part. I do think there's like that momnesia, right? Like <laughs> you forget the pain, but you'll do it again, but it's, yeah. it's, it hurts. It, it hurts. hurts. And you grow as a human being. So like, why do we think of death or loss or any of these other like hell of a painful, you know, experiences as any other, you know, as a possibility, think of them as growth a door to growing. I love that.
0: I think we think as a culture and it's not true of every culture, but I do think that we think pain is some kind of failure that if you're in, you know, if you're in pain or you're depressed or you're, you know, I had like a street fight with a friend who was like, well, you know, you're really depressed. And I was like, my fucking mother died while I was on vacation. How would you like me to be? What would you like? Like a d- depression is a completely appropriate response. I won't be depressed forever. I think there is an element and, and most grievers talk about, you know, their friendships and their relationships change and their relationship with their own self. I mean, I was just sort of like all out of fucks completely. Like I couldn't make myself care. I still- And maybe it's because I like it. I can't make myself care about stuff. I don't care about in the way that maybe I used to as a gift to other people. I just don't have that little extra anymore. I it's, it's part, it's what I, when I'm grieving, but you know, you said this thing about, about this moment where you were anticipating what it was going to be like, right? Like you were holding your breath and you were bracing for the pain of it. And you know, whether I'll just say it from my perspective, you know, from a trauma therapist perspective, the dangerous place for trauma is in the freeze. The fight and flight can still traumatize you. But it, I think we generally as a culture, we use the word trauma a little bit like we use the word depressed or anxious or whatever as like a colloquialism. But, but being traumatized really means your body gets stuck in that moment. And, and the energy becomes like a, a wall and there's no going around it. It's like, here, this death has happened and this is it for you. And, you know, there's a central nervous system thing that happens. And then we create meaning based on that. How we feel becomes who we are. And, you know, and then that is the limitation. But what we know again from humans and these are the books we read, right? Are like the worst possible thing in the world happened to you. You should be like on the street doing meth. You shouldn't be alive. How can you survive this? And and people survive it. And in the moment, what you did was you lived through the moment. You brought breath into the moment. And then you just survived it. Yeah. And that became the meaning, right? The meaning became, oh my God, I can... I can face this. It's not as bad. It's not as bad. Of course, it's the worst thing in the world, but it wasn't as bad as what you feared.
1: Yeah. And then that well, becomes that is that survival. Like you said, it's like, you know, this is kind of cool, right? Like when we talk about meaning making and we talk about identity and who we know ourselves to be. Yeah. That, and this is also the, this whole book is who I knew myself to be did die. Yeah, that's right. Like I died along with him and that is the human fear, right? Who I know myself to be has to survive. Well, what if there's a better you that you didn't even know? You're not done growing. You're not done growing. And, and, and things like, you know, like obviously the death of a spouse or a child, any, any death doesn't matter. Like a parent, whatever. I knew myself as Eileen. McGuire. Cause I kept that one right. Robertson. And that's who I was. I was Brian's wife and I was living a life as a partner with him. And in an instant right. that reality in human form was like gone. So like, well, shit, who am I now? Who am I? And if I'm not, and it, it like, it took a lot, it took a lot of healing and growing and therapy and, yeah. and work, but it was my identity dying And so, and it's funny because I rarely say this because it's like so offensive to to say it to people, but it's like, I'm grateful. Yeah. You know, like who I am today and the the life that I have today. And now, meanwhile, I'm not saying that I wish he died. Like, no. They're in two different hands. They're in two different different hands. I don't, can't choose that. And that's also, I can't choose the reality that's not possible. And it's futile and a waste of my time, unfortunately to pine for that. Like, Oh, I wish Brian was alive. I was like, if that would work, (laughs) if that, you know, it would have worked 10 years ago, but like, I'm like, if that was possible, right. Like saying the rosary and the person came back to life, if that could have worked great, but spending emotion and time and energy on that versus like just like you said, integrating it, bringing it into your life. So what is it? And I used to think in the beginning, I was like, well, I do have a partner in Brian. Like he's not an alive partner, but he's still my partner. And I'm still going to honor our promises together and what we promised each other in his not living and walking on the earth anymore does not mean that that promise isn't valid and alive. And so that is where I put my energy. And in the beginning, I actually really did think that I was going to be satisfied with that partnership. And I didn't need another one <laughs> yeah. until I like, until the, until the sex hormones started coming back around. And I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Wow. Like, I'm 41. Like that's a long
0: that's time. That's a long life. It's a li- well, and also I think, you know, one of the things that was really confusing for me when my mom died certainly was the identity, but like I knew myself to be someone who really was happy all the time and engaged in the world and curious and interested. And again, my mother's death was sudden. My brain and body went through the trauma of that but it was petrifying. I I felt terrified being in front of people who knew me well, because I was like, they're going to see that I'm not even a person anymore. And that felt really terrifying to me. But I think part of what you're guiding folks who are listening to is that over time, the work of grieving, you grow it. And I do think there are those folks. And I've learned not as a therapist, not to just come out and say this to people, But you know, I've had many folks who have their partners have died and or or have left because I think some of what you're describing that pull the the rug out from underneath you. Your life is not who you thought you were anymore. Also happens for folks when their partners, you know, say that they're gay or when they get divorced or it's not the same kind of permanence, but the but the identity crisis is similar. What I what I think you're telling us is you, you do the work to become, you have to keep becoming. And so it is this parallel line of like, you have to, you have to do the letting go and the experience of loss and the becoming. And there are all these modern grief theories when it's called the dual process model that says that you do some grief and you do some life and you do some grief and you do some life. But at some point, I think you do get to the like 51% of life. And 48% of grief. And when that happens, you are going to want to go on dates and concerts and live like, because that's really what you're wired to do and be. And so I've learned not to say to folks, oh, you're, you're definitely going to sleep with somebody again. I've learned not to say that because they don't want to hear it. But I also can hold the energy of knowing that that's a part of their life that they can't see yet. And sometimes when people are really miserable, I will say, I can see this for you. I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. I can see it. And you can just borrow on my belief for right now. You, you know, you, you do the grief part and I'll hold the life part. And at some point when you're ready, you can come pick it up. I'll keep it in this hand. But I think part of what you're describing is just sort of the awe and the gratitude that we have that that growing happens. And the only way it can happen is as the Phoenix in the, in the ashes of this
1: utter and complete destruction. But huge metaphor in my book is the Phoenix. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I talk about going to literally going to Phoenix when, when I was up there right before Trisha died, I grew up in Maryland and never been further West than West Virginia. And I took a trip uh, with a nonprofit to Phoenix and climbed Cam- Camelback mountain. And I had never yeah, experienced. we just there, yeah, anything like that. And just anyway, but it, it's sort of a metaphor for life, right? Both the phoenix rising, but also like being from my familiar s- surroundings to this totally unfamiliar, you know, mind. And not, and it was like, whoa, there's so much more out there than I had known. And being like, yes, it t- you you have to, you know, pick your head up to see it which takes a lot of energy and time and, and, you know, doing the work. Right. And like not rushing it. Cause I do feel like some people just want to get out, right. You want to get out of the pain
0: and it's like, yeah, people, people want you out of the pain. So you get a lot of like feedback. And I, and I do, you know, that word work around grief and loss is so important to me. And there's a writer whose name is Matt Bays, He's a good friend of mine. And he wrote just this gorgeous chapter where he just sort of says like, this is what the work was for me. And, and it's a laundry list. It's hours and hours of X, Y, and Z. And part of what I'm committed to in this podcast is also Saying to folks, it's not, it, it's not the scene in the movie where the water is running down the pain and the blonde woman is weeping, you know, into her Kleenex and eating Ben and Jerry's like that may be part of it, but also it's going to Phoenix and climbing Camelback mountain. It's taking this watermelon of energy that you've been told you have to learn how to carry and you're exhausted and it's hard and you haven't built the muscles yet and doing something to carry it. That's the metaphor that works the best for me. I think just cause I have back problems and I've often like injured myself and then had to come back from injury, injured myself and had to come back from injury. And it's non-linear, right? Like you have a good day and then you have a bad day. But at some point you come to understand this is what my back is, this is what my injury is and this is how I take care of it. So when it flares up, I don't look at myself and say I've failed. I look at it and say, well, that was always gonna happen cause that's part of my body, you know, is injured. And I think being able to say to folks, I go to physical therapy three times a week in order to manage my back so that they know that that's what this is. That's how I think about grief and loss. So saying, you know, people who talk about yoga, just saving their lives, it makes sense to me. It's breath work, it's meditative and it's in your body, right? So I have a long list of things that literally looks like a menu. And I say to people like, these are all things that people do in grief. These are things that people have told me, you know, writing, singing, gardening, cooking, like all, all the I N G words. Mm-hmm. Do any of them make any sense to you? Could you imagine doing any of them? Pick one. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, I did used to play the guitar when I was a kid. Okay. Try that. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. But I, even as a trauma therapist, you don't have to come to th- therapy. There's a million ways to grieve, but you do have to grieve.
1: Yeah, you do have to and,
0: and because we don't talk a lot about it, you know, we just don't. I'm always mystified by how much education we give kids on totally useless topics. But the idea that we don't talk about, at least in college, this notion of like, here's what happens to the body when it goes through a trauma. Here's how people behave when they are grieving. Here's how they say universally, it's good to show up. Now you have this information. You're going to need it because we're all going to be grievers. You might become an engineer and I might become a ballerina, but we will meet at the grief altar at some point.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that like, in addition to just like sharing my story, but also like with the yoga, like being a yoga teacher and I'm going to be hosting a retreat in Costa Rica, but it, yeah, you're invited. Well, April 30th through May 6th. All right. You think um, I'm kidding, but I'm not. So I'm going to get that information. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk offline. I'm actually working with this group uh, here in Chicago called Parents for Peace and Justice. And there are families mm-hmm. that have lost uh, family members, mostly mothers that lost their kids to gun violence in Chicago. You have to do the grief work. You have to do the mental work. You have to do the, whatever work, but you also need to get inside your body because it is the one that is carrying you around. Anyway, just it's about supporting people in practices that are unique to them and personalized to them. It's like that work to support them because your body is going through a lot when you're grieving, your body's going through a lot period, but when you can support it as a foundation for the work, that is also super important to me. Cause it, I actually, you know, it's one of those things. Like I think I I was eating pretty healthy cause I was vain, wanted to be thin, right? Like I was eating healthy and yeah. practicing yoga to look good, right? Truth be told. And it did make me feel good, yeah. you know? But then when I did grieve, I actually was so grateful that my body could take it. Like I was like, and I had no idea. That being strong, physically strong at the time, I was like, whoa, thank God, you know, and not to say that if you're not physically, whatever, but it's like, whoa, but if you could, you know, work on those things appropriately when you're grieving, like dramatic grief, like you you don't need to be going running, maybe you do, but not. It's individual where you are it's individual.
0: individual. That is, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is sort of like, you know, page 19 in your health magazine that says like, Oh, self-care. And this is what everybody should be doing. And depending on where your energy is, you know, if you're depressed, then taking a brisk walk is really good. Cause we want the sort of yin and yang of it. If you're oh. at the lower end, we want to be able to and the higher end, if you're super anxious, then maybe you're more of the bubble bath queen because we want to soothe you. And and I, ta- again, in other times, I talk a lot about the brain science behind that and people find that really comforting. Yeah. Listen, just because it says in the magazine, you should be taking a bubble bath. What you're telling me is a bubble bath makes you insane. And I can actually tell you why and also why we might be trying to move towards maybe one day taking a bubble bath because we're trying to move into this sort of middle bar. I like to be as personal in my own story as possible, partly because I was stunned to discover how, how hard I went down after my mom died. I was not the closest to her in my family. So if we had been having coffee and you were like, what do you think will happen when your mom dies? I think I would be, oh, what? they will be really hard on my sisters, but I'm the only one that checked into an, you know, inpatient facility and have historically been athletic and really believe in meditation, practice it less than I believe in it and yoga. I believe in those things and I couldn't do any of them. I couldn't do anything but sit still, and I did not eat. My sleep is still really disrupted, and I have to work really hard to to make sure that I'm being as careful with my sleep as possible. Part of that might also be menopause, but but I'm really careful. But I put on a tremendous amount of weight in between my dad dying and my mom dying. I really know because I'm so emotionally sensitive. And I just really think I was packing on the layers. And actually, oddly, I had I had a reporter want to have a conversation with me about sort of the vanity of putting on weight. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't have this conversation. If you want to have a conversation with me about what it's like to have no sleep or not be able to eat well or whatever, I want to have that conversation. But I actually don't care what I look like right now. And I don't not care, but like... I feel bad for myself that this is what my body did. I don't have the judgment you want me to have. So it's not going to go very well. So I don't have judgment, but I do have the, okay, well, similarly, two years after my dad died, all of his clothes were still in the closet, which I didn't know. I opened the door and was like, ah, my mother has not dealt with this at all. I look at my body and I'm like, sister, we got to deal with this now. (laughs) We got a deal.
1: Oh, to Costa Rica, yay! You know, so
0: I mean, honestly, I just had a session with my intuitive that you know it was all tears, all the things about coming home and coming back into my own body. And as I was bringing my microphone up to this room to have a call with you, I brought my yoga mat and my block and my little Tibetan singing bowl that I bought in Portugal up here and was like, "Gonna." Peloton has a yoga app. I'm coming. I used to do Bikram yoga, like before I had kids. So I know it brings you into your body. I'm not confused. I know all the things. I I read all the things. I've been in all the things. The fact that I haven't been doing them is part of the process. And now, now I feel more ready. I'm saying it because I want people to understand there is this progression. You're not just like six weeks back to baby weight. And then, you know, it's, that's not, grief and loss is this process. And I wrote every day, the the thing that came to me and was my biggest tool was writing. And I, you know, I write every day now I just finished this memoir. That's in edits and I'm writing a novel now. That's also about grief and loss. And I talk a lot about it, but, but the being inside my, right. The quantum physics, like being in my energy with my, is my next piece. And I'm, I feel encouraged by it. And I feel excited about it. I do think, you know, part of the reason the conversation is important is we're not talking about a one-off. We're talking about the lifetime of grief. How are you going to honor it? How are you going to carry it? You know, your children, when they get married or they have their own kids or they buy their own house, they're not going to have their dad there and they are going to be holding that grief differently. You're going to be holding it differently with them than when they were seven and, you know, nine and whatever. But that's the progress. I think part of what you have told us is you can't anticipate it. You just have to trust that you can do it. Yes. That you yes. will do yes. it, right? You need to you need to be able to develop that trustworthy relationship with yourself. I can't anticipate all the bad things. I just have to believe that I will handle them if and when they come.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And I, you know, things like yoga, having those in your back pocket are great tools. And I think for those of us that didn't have it in our back pocket, like we got to go find our tools.
1: Yeah. It's an opportunity to explore that. And there is, you know, I think as a culture, especially in America, right. We're so disconnected from listening to our bodies, uh, overriding what our bodies are telling us and like, just take a pill. And I just finished watching dope sick. Oh know. yeah, yeah. Like, and talk about a culture of anti-pain, right? Like, pain for any reason is unacceptable, and it's really created a huge horrible issue for ourselves. But just it, it's, it, but it's like even before that, whatever you eat. I was like watching this commercial. Like, if you eat, you know, when antacids came out, they were like showing pictures of commercials of people eating like pizza and like the greasiest yeah. food of course your stomach is going yeah. to hurt you can just take an antacid yeah. Yeah. and so we're but we've disconnected ourselves from from so many things regarding our bodies and and then focused. we think we're connected because we have this other culture that's like like you said, like judgment oriented and, and physical look, whatever. It's like it's so crazy, right? Who we are as a hum- as humanity and culture around our bodies. For me, like just creating a door, an opening, a conversation, both about death, right? Like that we all are going to die. And so what are what are the crazy conversations that are keeping us stuck in our culture around that, but also in our bodies? Your beautiful body took you through that grief, your beautiful body that needed a few extra pounds and the food that, that comforted you, like God, God bless the food. Thank God for that food that comforted you, you know, and you're ready to let that go. And maybe you're not. I hadn't
0: anticipated the experience of menopause also making it so difficult.
1: So I think if I had gone
0: back and understood like, oh, this is very menopause. Losing weight and menopause is, I just sort of was like, oh, I know how to lose weight. I'll be able to lose it. And that hasn't, and and more because you know it's not good. It's not good for your body to have extra weight on it as well. I this conversation, I mean, I could I could go on with it forever. There's so many threads, and I I really love where we're landing, which is sort of like listen, our bodies are the filters of the energy of the experience, and being able to use that body and survive with it. I know much more than the average bear about the neuroscience, about what's going on in your brain, but I don't even know a fraction of what, like the actual neuroscientists that I talk to or neurologists, but there's really no reason why everyone couldn't know that when your body goes through a trauma, grief is a trauma, these are the likely outcomes. And so when those things are happening, here's how we should show up for that. You know, there are all these ways that you can soothe your body. And things like breath work, breathing, meditation, which I think everyone thinks that's a buzzword, but like, hello, it's an ancient treatment as is yoga that being able to say like, okay, well, states should be having sponsored yoga in hospitals for people as part of grief work. Everyone should know from ages 12 on up that when you are in stressful times, you should be doing box breathing and you should, you know, be spending some 10 minutes doing some meditation and yoga every day, free apps, free, you know, all of that to me sort of feels like, look, I'm not trying to turn this into a communist country, but like China's onto something with its like daily exercise and it's, queen <laughs> do, you know, like they're they offering some resources to their folks bodies why they might be doing that might be more dubious than I'm making it sound, I love that we can offer that as sort of both a place of. Educational knowledge we've learned these things and experiential knowledge, and who you know you may have come in and said I wanted to do healthy eating and yoga because I liked the way it made me look, but
1: you and know feel feel yeah, yeah. yeah
0: that 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 the goal sometimes the things that we are doing out of a kind of wisdom, you know I, I find it really stunning that I was the person who was the most you know, taken out at the knees and knew the most. And I feel really grateful that I could, because it didn't take me very long to understand that my symptoms were getting much, much worse and needed really concrete treatment. So when it was offered to me, it was a hard yes immediately. Whereas sometimes when I'm working with my clients, they can go many more months of suffering and getting worse and sicker before they're able to say like, okay, yes, please put me on that bus to where all the treatment is. I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I'm going to email you. I want to know more and about your yoga retreat, because I really believe in those things when people are like, oh, I'm doing this. And I'm like, oh, that might be because I'm going to do that. So who knows, maybe next our next podcast will be from your yoga retreat in Costa Rica.
1: Um, And
0: I'm going to put in the show notes for everybody, all the um, stuff that your folks sent me about how to get in touch with you if they want to have you come and speak and things, but could you just let real quick in a sentence or two, just if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to
1: do it? So they can come to, I mean, robertsonhammer.com and there's the info. I'm also on social media, all the platforms, Facebook, awesome. Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, yeah, they can definitely reach out to me, connect with me that way.
0: I'm I'm so grateful for your time. This was a really lovely conversation. I feel like I could talk to you forever. Ever,
1: oh, you know, I know. I'm yeah. Like, yeah,
0: we should. Lovely, lovely yes. to meet you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.